So our, our passage today is, uh, it's very reminiscent of we're in the middle of a courtroom. Who has had the opportunity? You don't have to describe the adjective of how you felt about the opportunity, but the opportunity to serve your municipality as a juror. You've had to go to, to court as a juror. Yeah, I've, I had that opportunity. My, is, is, Stephanie and I had that opportunity a few years ago and I got on a murder trial and then she got on a murder trial. I'm not sure what that's, but it was really interesting to see what it was like inside of a courtroom beyond, you know, courtroom dramas that are on television. And inside of a courtroom, if you've been there watching the people, they, essentially the two parties are presenting their arguments for their benefit of their client. That's what they're doing. Someone's saying, well, that person was wrong and here's my evidence. The other person's saying, well, no, no, it's not that way. Here's my evidence. And what I want us to be feeling as we look in Galatians is it's kind of like that, but it's more powerful. And what I mean by that is it's not two equal parties saying here's my list of evidences and here's my list of evidences and see who's right. What Paul does in Galatians chapter 3, specifically in verses 6 to 14, where we find, we're in 10 to 14, Brandon did 6 to 9 last week, is he goes to the courtroom, if you will, he's writing to the Galatians where they are twisted there, then chapter 3 verse 1 says bewitched and he's going to them and he's saying the Judaizers brought these false ideas to you and they have their reasons for why they did that and instead of him saying well here's my reasons for why something else he goes straight to their textbook he goes straight to the Old Testament and he says let me prove to you what the Old Testament really says and if you think who's the who is the judge in this context it would be God, it's his word, it's his world. And he goes straight to God's text and he proves it from there. And that's what we're gonna see this morning. And it's, it's a really beautiful example of Paul just going straight to the heart of the matter and straight to their source documents, the Judaizers' source documents and proving them that there's error in their thinking and thus proving to the Galatians that the gospel that they received is still pure, is still true and it's still what they need to hold to. So in context, we're going to come just to help us get there. If you're looking at verse chapter 3, I want to walk us through where we've been so you know where we're going to be. It's important that we understand our verses that way, the gravity of what's going on. In verses 1 to 5, you see all those questions in Galatians chapter 3. Remember Brandon took us through that. You see all the questions that he's asking the Galatians. He's asking the Galatians to remember and to call back to their minds how they received the gospel in the first and they received it by faith through the Holy Spirit is how they received it. And he brings that, that the source of the gospel is by faith. The source of their steadfastness is in Christ alone. The source of their strength is in Christ alone. And he's bringing all that back to their memory because they've been bewitched, it says in verse one, they've been confused. And all of it is by hearing with faith. And in verses six to nine, Paul starts this courtroom conversation, this proof conversation where he runs through on the positive side, well, where does faith come from? Where is it first seen in the Old Testament? Where is it first recorded? There's a name in verses six to nine, a gentleman's name, Abraham, thank you, right? So he goes through the faith and how did Abraham believe? He believed by faith. By faith, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We see that in verses six to nine. It's where the summary argument there is that when it comes to faith, when it comes to salvation, how are you justified? It says, no one is justified by the law, but you're justified by faith is how you're justified. And he ends up in verse 9 and he says that all the nations will be blessed in you and it's by faith. So that involves all the, put yourself in Galatia. 
you're hearing this discussion, you're, hear, you're reading this letter, and you're a Gentile, and you have, or you're a Jewish convert, either one, and you have these false truths being preached at you, saying, no, 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 Paul was wrong, Paul's discredited, Paul's not from Jerusalem, he's not from that church. No, no, no. But yet you hear in this letter, no, remember, our grace, or our salvation is through grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, and Paul points it out, it's the same experience that Abraham had before the law. You have no concerns. And so they're on this high, like, yes, that is exactly right. And in verses 10 to 14, we're going to go next. We're going to see two realities of then, okay, so you believe that Abraham and the promise of Abraham is still there to be fulfilled by faith. But the question is, but how are you justified? And there's two realities we're going to look at. One is, one reality is you're justified by the works of the law. We're going to go into that. The second reality is that you're justified through Christ's redemption. And uh, the redemption that Christ purchased for us. And those are the two realities we'll see this morning. Our text, as we read it, verses 10 to 14 of Galatians chapter 3 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Our theme, which is on the top of your sheet, but for your notes, is a believer's redemption relies solely on faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone and not by works. A believer's redemption is realized solely on faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone and not by works. As we get started into our two realities, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord for his guidance and his word. Father, this is your day and this is your word and this is your salvation that you have planned before time for us to be a part of, and we praise you. Uh, Lord, our, our hearts are laid bare before you. Our minds are laid bare before you. We look, we're coming into your word. We're looking at your law of liberty, your perfect law of liberty. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would drive it deep in our hearts, the truths of it echoing throughout all of us and finding places where we think wrongly and highlighting those that we can repent and confess and finding places to encourage us to act rightly, to have renewed minds. Uh, Lord, according to your word, so that we would go do the purposes and practices that you have for us to do to bring you glory. Lord, help us this morning. We ask for your help through your Holy Spirit to understand and to apply. We pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. So to reality number one, life redeemed by relying on the law. This is verses 10 through 12 of Galatians chapter 3. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. I'll stop there as we look at verse 10 more closely. It's, this is those relying on works are cursed. And so we have to define the word relying. In the text it says, For as many as are of the works. And a really better translation is, For many as rely on those works. Is really what is being communicated there. Is they rely on the works that they're doing of the law for their source of redemption. And, and this is really key. Paul's addressing the key argument and the key temptation that is being presented to the, to the Galatians by the Judaizers. That they're saying, no, 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 great, yeah, faith through grace alone, that's, that's great. 
but you also need to do the works. Like you're not in Christ if you're not doing the works of the law. You're not doing it right. And so they were relying on those works as the key linchpin of their argument. That's what they were pointing to. They weren't pointing to repentance. They weren't pointing to faith alone and Christ alone. They were pointing to, well, are you doing the works? And if you're doing the works, then you're okay. That was the entire piece of their argument, that all that it hinged on. And quite honestly, it's the hinge that every religious work system bases its, its effort and, and value in. And Paul's going straight to that error and he's going to set the record straight. So he's like, for all of you, he's calling your attention. For anybody who's relying on works of the law, then they should be perking their ears up as they read and listening. And he says, so it's defined, what is the law, right? This law that he's referencing here, the works of the law, is the Mosaic law handed down from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is uh, the, the, the Old Testament that Moses recorded, right? So the Old Testament books uh, of the laws, he's pointing directly to what God handed down. And he's quoting out of Deuteronomy 27, right there, that quotation that's happening where it says, in quotes, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's straight from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And he's going straight to their texts and he's gonna do this over and over and over again. When I say there, I mean the Judaizers. He's going straight to their, they hang their, hey, we're Jews, you gotta listen to us. And he's going straight to the source documents of the Old Testament to where in, the, in, when, in Deuteronomy 27, when that really took place, the encapsulation statement, all the people of Israel looked at Moses and they said, amen. They agreed to that, that yes, this is God's law where it says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And this section of Deuteronomy was, is in the capstone of Moses' life, he's reiterating all of the law before they go into the promised land. So he's making sure everybody at that time remembered. And there's two verses in the next chapter over in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 28. I'll read them for you. One is verse 1 and one is verse 15. The, verse 15 the, the point of reading these for you is I want you to sense the reality of what people were experiencing as, as Moses handed the law down and reminded them of it. So this is chapter 28, verse 1 of Deuteronomy. It says... Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations, nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. What do you hear is the hinge point in that verse? It says, if you diligently obey the Lord your God. What's the point in that? The word obey. The word obey is what it's pointing at. Yes, the word obey. So it's looking at obedience to God's law. Obedience to God's law. In verse 15, you get the corresponding other side of the coin. It's like, what if they don't obey? It says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. If you do not obey. The law is a system of obedience. That's what it is. If you obey, the blessings come. If you disobey, the curses come. The law is a system of obedience. And Paul takes them there because he wants them to remember that this law that these Judaizers are pointing back to was for a certain purpose. And it wasn't to justify yourself before God. Because in those two verses, the, caps, the, the capstones of the law says, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, and if you do not obey the Lord your God. The standard that's being set there is if you do it all or if you miss. The standard is perfection that's being presented to them. 
So for them looking for a source of justification by relying on the works of the law, they're signing up for a system where it says, if I'm perfect, then I'll be justified before you. If I'm not perfect, then I won't. And Paul's making that very clear because the Judaizers are twisting it. They're, they're coming in and they're saying, all you have to do is do the works of the law. Not obey all of them, just do the works of the law, look like us, do the things that we do, and you'll be fine, you'll be okay, you'll be justified. And that's not what scripture says. Because in that quote from Deuteronomy chapter 27 in our verses, it says, those who abide by all, those who abide by all that's written in the law, the law demands that perfection. Brandon quoted a great verse last Sunday, Matthew 5, 48, where Jesus is setting up the standard of perfection. He's quoting back from that. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. And Leviticus 19.2, going back to the Old Testament, says the same thing. as It says, you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. The standard is perfection. Anybody who's signing up to a works-based system, they're signing up to a, set, a system of perfection. But that brings about a problem for mankind. Mankind is not perfect. We fail. Every, even if we try to do it right, even if at the point of, of your life where you go, no, no, I'm turning this leaf around, we're doing this. You still have your past to reckon with. We're not perfect. Every man will fail. We'll fail to perfectly live up to God's standard in holiness. And James 2.10 says, well, how many mistakes do you get? You, you, maybe there's a, you know, a list of things I can mess up so many times and it'll still be okay. In our culture today, you hear a lot of, well, I'm good. I'm pretty good. I'm good enough. I'm better than most. You get to see this. There's this there's, we're trying to create this standard of I'm maybe 51% good. But James 2.10 really highlights this and it says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So a system of relying on law works requires perfection. Mankind is not perfect. Do you see the lie that the Judaizers are putting forth in the danger of that gospel? They're saying, as long as you just do what we're doing, you'll be fine, but that's a lie. Following law works is your system of justification, of your system of redemption, saying I'm going to be perfect and God's going to grant me acceptance, will fail every single time. So it begs a question, then what's the purpose of the law then? If it's not to redeem me, if it's not to justify me, because I can't because I'm not perfect, then what's its purpose? We know the law is good. Jesus ratified it. He pointed back to the Old Testament and said there's not a speck or a, a t- I can't think of the right words, a little itty bitty piece of the law that's going to pass away at all. Right? It's all ratified. So the law is good. And he wrote it and he gave it to Moses so that they would set the standard of righteousness and the standard of God's people for the nations. The law is good. Its purpose, though, if we skip ahead in Galatians chapter 3, whoever's got this next passage, I apologize because I'm going to steal your verse. If you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, you'll see, you'll see what the purpose of the law is. Therefore, it says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. What's the purpose of the law? If you look at Galatians 3.24, it's a, starts with a T, tutor. It's a tutor, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a teacher. It's someone who shows you what the truth is. And the truth that the law is showing us is that God has a perfect standard and you cannot meet it. Its purpose was to drive people back to faith in God, in desperation, say, God, your standard is perfect. I can't meet this standard. And to come to him in faith for the promise of a savior. That's its purpose. That's what the law was for. 
not what the Judaizers were saying it was for, which is a way to justify yourself before the Lord. The commentator Hendrickson, Hendrickson puts this case together very well. He said it this way. He said, God gave his law in order that man, by nature a child of wrath, and thus lying under the curse, as definite declared in Deuteronomy 27, 26, which we read, might be reminded not only of his unchanged obligation to live in perfect harmony with this law, there's that standard of perfection, but also of his total inability to fulfill this obligation to be perfect with the law. That's its purpose, is to wake everybody up and to say, you cannot meet God's standard. Look, go try it. You can't meet it. And even if you were able to successfully do works, Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our works are tainted with sin. They're all dirty. So the next natural question is, well, then how is someone justified? If it's not by the law, how is someone justified? And verse 11 helps us in our text. If you move from verse 10 to verse 11, you'll see that the answer is there. It says that, that now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. You see the quotations there at the end, the righteous man shall live by faith. Remember, the meat of Paul's, or the, the meat of Paul's strategy in this courtroom discussion, this proof conversation, is to go to the source texts that the Jews, the Judaizers would recognize as, yes, that's the truth. That quotation is from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 is where that's quotation from. He's going to keep going back to the Old Testament to prove the truth, which is not what they're saying. The key verb in verse 11 here, though, is the idea is justified. Now that no one is justified by the law. That is to, to judge, to declare, to pronounce righteous, or to say, therefore, you are acceptable to God. You are justified before him. And Paul clearly emphatically states that that source of justification is not the law. He uses the word evident, Right? Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, it's clear, it's manifest, it's made known, it's inarguable. No one is justified by the law. And that word no one is a, a universal, absolute, nothing, whatever, not at all, in no way. That's not going to happen. You can't trust that. Don't go there. Well, then how are you justified? How does that happen? Habakkuk 2.4 says the righteous man shall live by faith. It's important that we go back to Habakkuk. And you can turn there. We're going to spend a little bit in there. So Habakkuk, it's five books back from Matthew. If you go from the center of the, or the break of the two Testaments, you can go backward five books. Uh, it's between Nahum and Zephaniah. Go ahead. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in Habakkuk. And he uses Habakkuk because this is one of the few times where God clearly states in the Old Testament that righteousness is by faith. So as we make our way there, we're going to look at this a little bit. Habakkuk prophesied about the coming exile of Judah, the coming just, justice that God's going to put, put upon Judah by bringing the Chaldeans, the Babylonians in and taking them away to exile. That was the prophecy that Habakkuk was bringing to Judah. Now, he asked God, the way this lays out in chapter 1, you see a question of Habakkuk and he asks God, what are you going to do about all the wickedness and injustice that I see around me inside of Judah? Where, where is your justice? Where is it? Where is it going to come from? How are you going to handle that? Certainly these wicked people can't just continue. And God answers his question. He answers it, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans in to bring justice against, the, against Judah and take them away into exile. Habakkuk didn't necessarily like God's answer. 
Um, he, because his next thing was, well, well, hold on, wait a minute. The Chaldeans are more idolatrous than what we have going on in Judah. Why are you bringing in more evil people as your source of justice upon Judah? I don't understand that. He wasn't disagreeing. He was wanting clarification. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we see a, a right way to clarify with the Lord, right? Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will stand on my guard post and I will station myself on, my, on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. That's important if you're going to think you're going to ask a question of God. That's a heart of faith right there. I'm going to reply when I am reproved. When God sets me straight, I'm going to respond. But I have this question. I have this question. Why are you bringing these more evil people to judge Judah as your answer? And all of chapter 2 is God's response of what he's going to do. But I want to point you to chapter 2, verse 4, the way it's written in Habakkuk. It says, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. In the context, we see Habakkuk asking this question, why are you operating this way? And God's responding and says, I'm operating this way to bring judgment against, the, against Judah. And I know the Chaldeans are evil and I will judge them. Your job is to be faithful. The righteous lives by faith, not by any other. He could have said, but if you get everybody back in Judah doing the right thing, if you turn everybody around, if you do all this stuff, then I'll turn those people away. He could have said that, but he didn't. He said the righteous shall live by faith. Your job is to live by faith. And if, if it helps Habakkuk and it helps us, if you jump down to verse 20 of chapter 2 for perspective, why would I believe that? Verse 20 says, but the Lord in his holy temple, let all the earth, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. And you see perspective. Where do we have faith? We have faith in God alone. And that's where salvation comes from. That's where justification comes from because he is the Lord in his holy temple and all the earth is silent before him when he comes in judgment. In chapter 3, there's a, a really a wonderful picture at the end in verses 16 of Habakkuk's prayer. And it highlights God's sovereignty, his power, and his awesomeness. But in verses 16 to the end, you see Habakkuk's heart of, Habakkuk's heart of faith, which is in total juxtaposition to go-do works. That's why I want to show it to you. So chapter 3 of Habakkuk, verse 16 says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Do you guys see the picture? That's not a rosy picture, right? Our entire existence is failing, is how you could summarize that. That's where, his, that's where he's at. Now look at 18. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. That is faith in God alone. He just received the message, this is going to happen. Judah's going into exile. It's going to be done by evil people. You need to have faith in me. I am God alone. That is where salvation comes from. And you see Habakkuk land on that in 18. He says, though all these things are going to happen and those places, this is going to be terrible. He says, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. If you're looking for a picture of faith, that's it. 
It's not what the Galatians were being told was a way to be saved. And that's why Paul takes them back to Habakkuk because even the Judaizers would go, yeah, that's, that is the truth. And remember, he's doing that every single time. And so this faith is the source of justification with God. In chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, if we go, you can make your way back to Galatians now, uh, chapter 3, and we're in verse 11. That quote ends with this verb, shall live by. This verb, shall live by. In English, we're like, okay, yeah, that's okay, yeah, shall live by. But the verb actually has a bigger emphasis to it than maybe how we would just respond to it in the surface. And it's really this idea, shall live by, is you're going to hang the formula for acceptance with God on, is really how you want to think about that verb. Shall live by, is you're going to hang the formula for your acceptance with God on this idea. In Habakkuk, we see it's shall live by what? Shall live by faith. Your entire formula for acceptance with God is by faith in his by faith in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone. And earlier, if you go back and look at verse 10, and you look at the, the law works idea, it says whoever's going to abide by them, this, this curse is, is upon them is that shall live by them. It's the same idea. If you're going to live by these works, then you're going to hang your entire acceptance before God on a, on a system of works. Or Habakkuk 2.4 says you're going to shall live by faith. And this is where we're declared righteous and acceptable in his sight. And someone who lives by faith, that's their securing their current and their future acceptance with God. And that's the gospel. But lest anyone say, okay, I hear you, Paul. That's, I agree with you. But, but the argument from the Judaizers is kind of strong. So shouldn't I also be saying works? Shouldn't it be both faith and works? It, shouldn't it, that, that's what saves me? And so look at verse 12. Paul declares us really clearly if we had any questions. This is solely by faith. Verse 12 says, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So Paul sets up the truth from, well, if you're going to practice the law, you're going to live by the law. And Paul desired to be completely clear. He knew that these people were being twisted. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, they were being bewitched. Like, who bewitched you? Who's getting in your head and making you think differently than what I taught you originally? And he's saying that because he says the law is not of faith. It means that finding justification in God's eyes has to be done by keeping the law perfectly like we reviewed earlier. And in, this, this, in verse 12, it says, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, this on the contrary sets up a, a thought. And this on the contrary sets up a thought that the next words right before that quote of he who practices them shall live by them is the, but the law states this. On the contrary, the law says this. If you're going to live by the law, the law says he who practices them shall live by them. It's that same verb, shall live. If you're going to practice the works of the laws, your sense of justification, you're going to live by that practice. Your, your acceptance before God is defined by that practice. So it's not faith and works. It is solely by faith. They are mutually exclusive contexts. You cannot have faith and works and say, but I, I trust in faith because you're not. You're trusting in works. So it's, they are mutually exclusive concepts. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 clears it up really well as Paul writes to Titus. He says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds or works, if you will, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We're not saved by works. We're not justified to God as acceptable by works. 
we are saved not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The commentator Hendrickson sums it up really well. He says, leaning on law means leaning on self. Exercising faith means leaning on Christ. Leaning on law means leaning on yourself. Exercising faith means leaning on Christ. The Judaizers were putting, a, putting forth a complete and utter lie, a dangerous one, to say that it's by works that you're saved or to say maybe faith and works that you're saved. And there's a reason in Matthew chapter 23 that Jesus addresses the scribes and Pharisees with a series of eight woes because of how dangerous these lies are. As just an example of these woes, the first one, Matthew 23, 13 says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. This is a dangerous lie to put forth a separate gospel. So how do we apply this idea that it's definitely not of law works? We just cleared that up. If you had any questions about that, it's not by anything you can do that you can be saved. Um, and the Galatians are breathing this sigh of relief. Like, okay, it's not. I remember, it's not. But how do we apply that to ourselves today? Let's, um, and it, help me out. I'm just going to ask a question you guys think of answers. Is what are ways that even today that we can tempt ourselves or even trick ourselves, trick our minds that we're somehow earning acceptance with God by what we do. What are some of the, and you can reference people that are near you that are somewhat like you but not you as you answer this question, right? They're near you, somewhat like you but not you. You don't have these thoughts, but how could someone possibly have these thoughts, right? I, I, not everybody's like, oh, I struggle, I get it. So we're talking about the person next to you that struggles. Okay, so um, how do we apply this section to our lives? What are ways that we can trick ourselves that living by works makes me acceptable to God? Gifts of? Ah, I paid money to the church. I must be accepted. Okay. Thank you, Tim. I read my Bible today. Or for this week or for this year. I read it twice this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, those echoes to my heart. You know, when you're not thinking about it, those thoughts wisp across your brain going, I read my Bible. God must be, wait a minute. I serve twice a day. <laughs> this Sunday school, Tim. It's this one. Yes, regular attendance and Sunday school. 100%. Someone else said something else. Yeah, I went to church regularly. Yeah. Um, so I had the church activities on my list. Uh, I had, I loved my family really well. Like I sacrificed for my family. I really, I did the things that maybe no one else wanted to do. I had the comparison. I'm pretty good. I'm better than most. That can trick someone into thinking that they're acceptable to God. Tim hit, I gave money. Um, there's the look at that person over there. Whew, I'm not like that. You know, Jesus handled that one, right? With the uh, repentant tax collector. And then there's the idea of retribution theology, which is false, which is the idea of either I don't have bad things going on in my life, so I must be okay. Or it's the idea that otherwise I have hard things going on in my life. I'm in trial, so I must not be accepted by God right now. That's also a lie. That is not what God's word says. We just went through it. You are acceptable to God. You are in his hands, permanently kept there, sealed by the Holy Spirit by faith and faith alone. Nothing you can do. If you try to add what you can do to it, you end up in a spot that 
you are, uh, you, you are a sinner. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God. It is impossible. Which is why it was so important that we landed on Titus 3, 4 to 5 at the end. It's so important. I'll say it again. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Nothing we can do on our own, of our own two hands, of our own volition, of our own works, any of those things we talked about can save. No deed of righteousness because they're all tainted by sin. Only faith in the kindness of our God and Savior saves. Which wraps up the first reality of what if you're going to try to rely on works to be justified before the Lord? You can't do it. That doesn't work. So then what does work? How can you rely? Who can you rely on for redemption? And that's where verses 13 and 14 take us. Our second reality, which is life redeemed by relying on Christ. And again, remember, Paul is in this courtroom. He's proving to them by letter through the Old Testament that they'd been twisted, they'd been tricked. And he's going back to exactly how they can look at Christ and know that their redemption is solely in him. Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's start at the beginning of verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us. And you can take a big sigh and breather and say, us. He puts us in there. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the Galatians. Who were the Galatians made up of? Gentiles and Jews who were living in Galatia and who received the gospel on his first missionary journey. Us, Gentiles, are included. We'll see that as we close out verse 14. So let's define redeemed. He redeemed us, but what is this idea of redemption? It means it's a payment of a price to recover from the power of someone else. Another way to say it is to ransom or to buy off. Metaphorically, in Scripture, it's used as Christ freeing mankind from the dominion of the Mosaic law at the price of his vicarious death. Remember, the law is not bad, but under the system of the law, the standard is perfection. If you're going to stay under that system, you're going to practice in that system, then you're going to be held accountable to that system. And that's what it means by the dominion of the Mosaic law is you're accountable to that system. But Christ freed men from that system. Well, how? The price of his vicarious death. In short, it's the idea of buying the slave's freedom. That's redemption. And if you're going to be a part of Christ's payment plan for redemption, if you're going to be a part of that, which that, per- that payment plan is perfect. We know it's solely by faith. We've been talking about that this morning. But you have to know who God is. You're going to, every person that's part of that plan is going to come to a spot in their lives where they realize that they stand before a holy God, that they've been looking at that system of works and thinking that they're making their way up the ladder. And they come in front and in presence of a holy God and they realize that I'm not holy. I'm, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I, I do all kinds of terrible things. And your standard is perfection. I can't meet that. And if you're going to be a part of Christ's redemptive work, then you come to that place in your life and you realize that. And through repentance of your sins, which is agreeing with God that you are wrong. You are a sinner. You are broken and you would deserve all of the wrath he has towards sin. But you also believe his promise, that there's a promise, there's a gift through Jesus Christ for eternal life. 
And you place all of your faith in his work, his perfect work on the cross where he lived a perfect life and he was on that cross, which we're about to examine what that meant to them. He's on that cross and he paid that price for you. He paid all of it so that you don't have to. And because of his perfect life and him paying your full penalty for sin and you place your faith there, you can be saved. That's how you partake in Christ's redemptive plan. That was a breath of fresh air for the Galatians. It should be a breath of fresh air for us. And if anybody in this room doesn't know Christ as their redeemer, it should be a breath of fresh air for you. Because that's how you can be found acceptable before the Lord. Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. He says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Isn't that a fresh error for the Galatians? For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the gospel. That's our redemption story. That's being redeemed in Christ, and that's how it's accomplished. But for the Galatians who are being showed, no, no, you have to rely on works. Remember, works. Paul's really clear in verse 13. He says, we were redeemed from what? Christ redeemed us from what? If you look at Galatians 3.13, it says, you were redeemed from the curse of the law. And the curse of the law, that idea is not that the law is bad. That's Paul's phrasing that means that curse of the law is there's a penalty for, fa for failing to perfectly conform and be found acceptable on your own works. There's a penalty for that. God's going to judge that. There's a consequence for that. He has to judge sin. And everyone who lives by those works of the law will be held accountable to that standard of perfection. So he redeemed us from that, from that curse of the law. And how did he do it? Keep going in verse 13. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? He became the curse for us having become a curse for us. For it is written, and he proves it from the Old Testament again, he says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now context is really important. We're, saying that Christ, we're not saying that Christ somehow sinned. We just looked at that. He's not, he's perfect. But what we are saying is when Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, 23 there, which is everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God, it helps to go back to verse 22 of Deuteronomy as well. So I'll read that for you to get the full context. It says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. It's attaching the idea that their God's penalty is being paid out on the person that's hung on a tree. That's what Paul's pointing to. You wanted to know who paid the penalty for your sins? How did he redeem you from that curse? When Christ was on the cross, he, he points back to Deuteronomy, which they all know. is like, see, he was accursed by God and he paid it. And he paid it. That's how you can know that you have someone who has fully redeemed you from the penalty of sin because Christ was on that cross. In Deuteronomy, where he's quoting from, the Jews didn't know about crucifixion. That was hundreds of years before. But they did know that, it, someone, that that person was under God's judgment. We know that Christ wasn't on that cross because of his own sin. We know that. But we also know that that's where he took the penalty of our sins upon himself and he paid it. First Peter says this really well. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, and then also chapter 2, 24, both say, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But how were you redeemed? With precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's how we are redeemed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. And that phrase takes us back to the Old Testament to prove it again to Isaiah chapter 53, which makes Christ's work on the cross, his perfect work on the cross, really clear, specifically verses 6 to 11 of Isaiah 53. It says, Christ, it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Why? Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He's perfect. Verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And in verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Christ redeemed us through his perfect life on the cross. Him being on that cross show the Judaizers by proof and the Galatians by proof that yes, it was him who was accursed by God and him who took all of your penalty for sin upon himself. What a breath of fresh air for the Galatians to hear that again. And what a death nail for the argument of the Judaizers to see that everything that you're trying to say is false. It's all a lie. But we get verse 14 as well. And verse 14 gives us the, re the reason. Why did God work out his redemption plan the way he did? And we see two in order that's, which means is this is why this happened. In verse 14 it says, In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You have to be a Galatian here as you hear this read. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham. What was the blessing of Abraham? I could make that a quiz question. I could ask Brandon and he can answer it because he taught it to you two Sundays ago. The blessing of Abraham is that a seed would come through his line. Christ Jesus the Messiah would come through his line and be a blessing to all the world. Salvation, the Messiah came through Abraham. That's the blessing of Abraham, right? And it might come to who? If you look at verse 14, that blessing of Abraham comes to who? The Gentiles, everyone, right? The Jews already had that blessing of Abraham and it comes to the Gentiles also. So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That first, in order that, that blessing of Abraham, that comes to the Gentiles. And then the second, in order that, it says, in order that, or so that, again, we, I love this us, I love this we, like we're a part of that. So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And what is that promise? That promise of the Spirit through faith is the explanation, what it, it explains further the blessing of Abraham. That's salvation through Jesus Christ alone. When you're saved, your hearts are generated, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And just like Ephesians 1.13 says, you are sealed. It's permanent. It's done. You're found acceptable. You're found sanctified positionally in Christ alone. And it's through faith. 
these Galatians who placed their faith in Christ alone when Paul was there on his first missionary journey are safe in God's arms if they just remember it and stick to God's truth, which Paul just laid out for them, proving through the Old Testament his case, not even his case, just what the truth is. We're safe. We're God's family. We're allowed to call him Abba Father. They were allowed to call him Abba Father. We're heirs according to promise. Think about that blessing. So as we apply this, let's do a similar exercise to what we did earlier. We did what happens if you're relying on works and you trick yourselves into thinking like that, how can it show up in our lives? But let's apply it in the sense of if I'm redeemed by grace alone, if I am in Christ alone, then what is the purpose and practice of my life? What should it be like? This is how, how should I be as a redeemed by Christ person? We should be bearing fruit, bearing good fruit. What else? We should imitate Christ. And if you go back to even just last Sunday, Philippians chapter 4, when Dusty, when Dusty preached out of there, like here, dwell on and do these things. Whatever is true, honorable, all the way through that. What else is the purpose and practice of a believer? Say it again. We're ambassadors, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5.20, right? That we would be ambassadors for him, begging people to be reconciled to God, pleading with them. We get to be a part of this work. Hopefully you all see that connection and it just warms your heart. Like, I'm a sinner, I'm broken. But God is choosing to redeem and he puts you to work in his plan, which is excellent and perfect and good. What are some other things that we do? We pursue holiness. What's the benefit of us pursuing holiness? Take that further. Mary, you can answer or you someone else. But what's the benefit? If we pursue holiness, what does that do? And how does that impact the people that you circulate around? Well, it should be a living witness. That's why we pursue holiness. God has said pursue it, and it has the benefit of the gospel dripping out all over all of the people around us. I had, I had those too. I, I, um, I also had a couple others. We enjoy the peace of God, the reality that you are safe in his arms. There's a reason that Paul starts most of his epistles with grace and peace to you. Because that's what he's talking about. You have peace with God. Remember that. Don't forget that. We have fellowship with God. We can come into his throne room at any time by grace. And we're immediately ushered in there and we're at it. And we can put all of our cares at his feet. We have that. We have that. That's who we're supposed to be. We can rejoice greatly in the midst of any circumstance. Second, 1 Peter 1.18 says that with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We're transformed into his image. We're pursuing holiness, right? We live out the one another's. In small groups, we're memorizing these one another's verses. We live those out to one another. We have Jesus as our intercessor. We're not left alone here. And we can revel in the justification by faith alone and in Christ alone. It's a beautiful reality to rely on Christ's redemption for your acceptance with God. And that's where we land. In summer, we've looked at two realities of how, our, how life could be redeemed. Life could be redeemed by relying on the works of the law. It has one caveat, you have to be perfect. And no one is. So it's, it's impossible. Christ is the only man, being the God-man, that was able to live a perfect life, that lived a perfect life. Uh, and this was the false gospel that Judaizers took. And they said, no, no, you can add works to it. And that's what you have to do. The second reality we looked at was Christ's redemption to us. 
that word us, Jews and Gentiles alike. And he became the curse and he paid the penalty of our sins so that we have the promise of the spirit. We're sealed in him and we can do his work. In conclusion, I just ask a couple things. First, go into our lives and go and look and see where you may be tricking yourself, tempting yourself to find acceptance with God by the stuff that you do. And look there and find those places. And when you find them, if they're there, repent of them, confess them, and move into grace. Because that's where we live. And the second one is dwell on that purpose as a believer. I wrote down the verse Romans 12 too on your notes because that sums it up for me in my head. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, you have clearly laid out the inarguable case from your scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, that all point to salvation, redemption, is through your son, Jesus Christ, alone, by faith alone. No one is justified by works. Lord, solely by the redemption purchased from us, for us, through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as we walk away from here, as we fellowship, as we worship in the next hour. Lord, as we go to this afternoon, to the next day and the next. Lord, help us to pursue the, and practice the purposes that you have given in us uh, through your word. Lord, help us to rely on your strength. Help us to rely on you and to, uh, to always and constantly remember and praise you for the redemption we have in your son, Jesus Christ, because that's how we live this life before you. Lord, let your gospel go through and go forth from our lives as, as the uh, testimony of the example of how we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.